Our sermon this morning is on the cost of being a disciple. This is a, this is a fastball from Jesus here. It's not, not, not a super easy sermon to hear. Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 34. Turn there in your, in your Bible. The, la- the last few weeks, we've been, uh, we've been at a, a banquet uh, with, with Jesus, essentially. He was invited to the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, um, and he has some choice words for the people that are in attendance at this, at this banquet. Uh, the man who invited him, he rebukes him and confronts him. Uh, he tells a, a parable um, about a banquet. Uh, um, you know, he tells a parable about a banquet and about people who are invited and who spurn that invitation. And, and then the, the uh, host of the party ends up finding people and kind of filling his house and filling his, his banquet. So, so Jesus is, is kind of uh, speaking to and confronting um, you know, all, of these, all of these people saying that the heart of God is one that wants to invite people into his presence, invite people into his kingdom, but you can only come, you can only be there if you prioritize God and God's will and God's preferences and his desires and God's kingdom. If you want to come into God's kingdom, you have to come into God's kingdom on his terms. God won't let anyone into his kingdom who insists on being there on their terms. God invites anyone and everyone indiscriminately, provided that they come on his terms. And so um, our text this Sunday doesn't necessarily happen at that same location, maybe right on the, on the heels of, of that, um, but it is a similar, it's on the same theme. And so it's likely that, that that's probably why Luke situated these two together is because even though uh, this uh, you know, teaching from Jesus today probably happens while he's traveling out elsewhere, it's on the same theme of, of coming to God on God's terms. It's on, it's on the cost of discipleship, what, it actually, uh, what, what God requires of his people if they want to follow him. And his, his big idea is that... Um, discipleship is costly. Discipleship is difficult, and it's hard, and it's costly. It's not easy. It makes demands on us. And his, his uh, kind of exhortation in light thereof, in light of the costliness of God's, uh, the, the, of what it means to be a disciple of Christ's, the, the exhortation is don't give up, don't quit. No going in that it's costly, and don't ever, ever, ever quit. So let's read through Luke 14, 25 to 34, and then let's spend a few moments uh, just considering it and talking about it. It reads, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, or his wife and children, or his brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go out to war against another king. Won't he first sit down And consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one that is coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything that you have can not be my disciples." 
Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word. We pray that you would encourage our hearts as we sit under it. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would convict us of sin, and that you would assure us of the pardon that is ours in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Like I said, probably not uh, at the, the ruler of the Pharisees' home anymore. He's probably just traveling around. And he turns to them and says, so he's, got, he's surrounded by 12 disciples and then dozens, if not hundreds, more people, men and women who would follow along with him, go from city to city. Whenever he would enter one, he was usually greeted by a large crowd. So just a lot of people kind of coalescing together, constant opportunities for preaching, teaching, healing, miracles. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even they even hate their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So Jesus does not uh, ease his way in. He does not start with something a little more palatable or a little bit easier to, to hear. He doesn't start with some sort of, you know, if you want to be my disciple, you can't unless you can, you know, afford a, a cover charge at the door, $20. Or unless, you know, you can't be my disciple, you know, there's not, there's not some like, like moderate, easy, you know, stip, right? you can't be my disciple if you're a fan of this particular sports team. It's like, you cannot be my disciple if you don't hate your family, mother, father, siblings, spouse, kids, which is a big ask because we have this like biological, involuntary, you know, inclination to love. Our, we share DNA with our, 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 our very genes and chromosomes are predisposed to love and look out for and take care of people in our immediate family. And so this is a, a big ask. It's also uh, a, a difficult com- so not only is it a difficult command to obey, it's a difficult command to even understand and even like empathize with or, under, or like figure out why he would say it. It seems to run counter to every other you know impulse that we see in Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we're constantly seeing commands uh, you know to, to love your neighbor, love your family, love your brother and sister. And so this is just very strange, right? The first, well, the, the very first sin in the whole Bible is uh, Adam and Eve sinning against God by eating uh, of the fruit that they were forbidden to eat from. But the second sin in Genesis 4, the very second thing, is this exact thing. It's, it's a, a person, Cain, hating his brother, Abel, and he kills him, and, and God rebukes him, and, and God punishes him. Uh, for it. All throughout Genesis, there's all these like this constant chronicling of tension and suffering that results from people mistreating, more often than not, members of their own family, not loving their parents or their children or their brothers, right? They're sinning against one another, lying to one another, lying about one another. 
But the, the, the biblical mandate to love your parents and brothers and your, your family member is so important to love them and not hate them that it makes the top ten list. It's, it's one of the ten commandments, honor your father and your, your mother. If you fast forward to the New Testament, over is the same recurring theme. Love your parents, love your, your family, right? Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for not loving their parents like they should. They're laundering money, right? They're, they're, they're kind of taking this biblical uh, command to provide for their parents in their old age, and they're laundering money so that they don't have to take care of their familial responsibilities. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you're not loving your parents like you should. When Jesus is on the cross, his last act, as it were, as a, as a a human being on earth is to take care of his mother and to ensure that she is going to be taken care of after he dies. Paul in 1 Timothy 5, right? Uh, he says, you know, he's talking about uh, the church taking care of and providing for vulnerable widows and making sure that they have everything that they need to eat and live. And he says, uh, you know, a caveat here, this is really only for widows who don't have kids that live locally. And so, so if there's a widow that has kids who live locally, the church shouldn't need to take care of them because her kids will take care of them because it's, it's incumbent upon every person to take care of their parents, to love their parents. In fact, he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. So all throughout the Bible, we see loving your parents is good, loving your family is good, taking care of people that you are related to is good, failing to look out for them is bad, being indifferent to them is bad, hating them is bad. And here Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your, your family. So it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to do, but it's difficult to understand. We can we can maybe you know accomplish some uh, progress in understanding it by just just considering the word hate as Jesus uses it here within its context that it was used in the first century. Um, it was almost like an idiom or a, or a way that they would use the words love and and hate uh, in the first century. It didn't always carry the same like negative connotation like we understand it today. I I hate you or I despise you, or I, I want to do you harm, or I want you to be miserable. In fact, the word, the word miserable comes from this word, uh, miseo. And so, so the word, so, so hate uh, can mean that, right? In fact, more often than not in the Bible, when you see the word hate, it means what we think of hate today. Like, I hate you, I want to do you harm, I want you to be miserable. So it can mean that, but it has a little bit broader semantic range than the word hate that we understand today. And what the word hate can mean in Scripture, in several places it does, is it just means uh, love less than. Or like, if I'm presented with a choice with two options, and I have to pick one, then I pick one, and then the one that's not picked in that choice is the one that I, that I hate. So you, you love one thing and you hate the other thing, right? Um, so, you know, like if you're grilling out, hey, do you want a hamburger or a hot dog? Well, I'll take a hamburger. Well, so again, the, the semantic rage of the word hate uh, in ancient Israel, you'd say, I'd love a hamburger and I'd hate a hot dog. Like, I, I, you know, I, I, I am presented with a choice. There's two things. I pick one and this is the one that I did. It doesn't mean that I, like, hate hot dogs. Like, I want to just annihilate every hot dog from the planet. It just means, right, right now, given this choice, I'd love a hamburger and I'd hate a hot dog. Love, hate. My, hamburger's my preference. Hot dogs I like 
less. And so that was kind of part of how this word hate was used. We see that several places throughout Scripture. Again, in Genesis 29, uh, Jacob marries two wives, Rachel and Leah. And it says he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And then a few verses later, it says Jacob hated Leah. So did he, did he love Rachel more than he loved Leah, or did he hate Leah? And the answer is, is both, right? They kind of would use the word hate like that. Matthew 6, Jesus says, uh, he's talking about money, and he's talking about love of money. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Inevitably, you're going to love one, and you're going to hate the other. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if you love God, you hate money, and you're repulsed by it, and you're disgusted by it. Uh, or if, if you love money, you might understand yourself to actually love God, but you just love God less. And Jesus is saying, right, you, you won't necessarily feel, you know, affection for one, hostility for the other. It's just that you'll end up loving one more than you love the other. And, and money kind of has this manipulative allure to it that's always going to make it, it's going to make us kind of want to love it more than we love love God. And so that's the sense Jesus is getting at here. It's not uh, that you have to hate your, you have to have animosity or resentment or hatred or, you know, want to do them harm to your family, but rather that you have to love your family more. You have to love God more than you love your family. You, you can love your parents. You can love your siblings. You can love your spouse. You can love, in fact, you have to do all that stuff like that. That's a rule, right? You, you have to do all of those things, love your family, but you have to love God more. God has to come first even before your family. God's saying, I, I want you to prioritize me and prioritize my gospel and prioritize the mission that I've called you to even more than you prioritize those people that you are biologically wired to prioritize above everything else. I realize that you love your spouse more than you love anyone else in the whole world. I realize that you swore a covenant oath before God to love them and serve them and protect them. I realize that you have a special connection with your kids and that you love them unlike you've ever loved anyone or anything else. Right? I realize how much you value all of the relationships with all of the people that are kind of, you know, located right around you in your life. And I'm saying that you have to love God more than that. Your loyalty to God has to trump your loyalty even to those members of your family. This is a big ask. This is a, this is a, a weighty, significant, uh, you know, command words from, from Jesus here. I want you to love me more than you love your own family. And it's not just your own family. It's also your own life, right? Yes, even their very life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. To carry your cross, your cross is a, an, a device for torture and execution, Right? The cross is, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to walk willingly to your own death every single day. You have to pick up the instrument that's going to be used to torture and kill you, and you have to walk with it up the hill to the site where you're going to be executed. If you want to know what it means to follow me, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not like the uh, I don't know, it's not some, some path of leisure and least resistance where you get what you want on your terms. If you want to follow me, that's what you're signing up for is, is death, daily death, regular, over and over death, death to yourself, death to your desires, death to your reputation, death to your family. Like it's a, a continual over and over. I'm going to place Jesus above myself and above even those in my 
family. That's what it means to, that's what it means to follow me. That's what you're signing on for, right? So is anyone, right, is anyone still interested, right? Jesus is not employing, you know, this kind of marketing and, you know, seeker sensitive kind of let, let me, let me lure people in by appealing to their felt needs and determining what they want and then kind of, right, there's a lot of, there's a lot of churches and ministries today that, uh, you know, that's exactly what they do, right? They, they appeal to people's felt, like they're, they're competing for market share, as it were, in the, in the American evangelical, you know, landscape. And so they're trying to create the best product, figure out what people want out of church, and then sell that product to people. And Jesus is not saying, God wants you to be happy, right? What do you want out of a relationship with me? Let me give that to you because this whole thing is all about you. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be demanding. And you're going to suffer. And then you're going, and then you're going to die. Right? Signing up to be a Christian is signing up to a life that's, that's far harder than a life that you could have had otherwise. It's signing up to a life where you put God and God's will and God's desires and God's preferences and God's laws ahead of yourself and your preferences and your desires and your will. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to bait and switch, trick people into following him with words that are easy to hear. He's very clear what exactly is demanded of them. And in fact, he says, uh, you know, it's, it's better that you know going in. It's, it's better that you know before you ever even uh, identify with Jesus in the first place. You should know what the cost is. You should know and you should actually take that into account before you ever even identify with Jesus in the first place. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish, everyone who sees you will ridicule you, saying, this person begun to build and cannot finish. I googled that this week. There are buildings all over the world that people started building and couldn't finish. They got halfway through the building project, and then they ran out of money, and they didn't even have money, enough money to tear down the building that they had made. Right? They made a big, a big skyscraper, you know, 30 buildings tall, and it's just a skeleton, like a steel skeletal structure, and they're like, we don't have enough money to finish this building. We don't have money to, to tear it down, so we'll just leave it there. And they would like put billboards on it, just like a big billboard, you know, sign or that kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, uh, if you, you know, a, a, a wise builder, a wise, uh, you know, uh, uh, developer is going to is going to be absolutely sure that he knows he has enough money to pay for this project. But because if you don't, you're going to look. Like an idiot, you're gonna you're, you're gonna just have this monument to your own incompetence that's just there forever. People to drive by, laugh at, think about how dumb you are, right? And Jesus says, don't don't do that with your Christian life, right? The Christian life is costly. The Christian life is expensive. It it makes demands on you and on your soul. And so you need to know going in what exactly Jesus is going to ask of you so that you're able to finish. If you start, then you need to be able to, to finish, right? right? He says, if, if, you're, if you lay a foundation or not able to finish, everyone sees it's going to rid it. It would have been better off if you just didn't start building the building in the first place. Just save your money, invest it elsewhere, but don't build a building halfway through and then done. And Jesus says, likewise, if you're not willing to follow Jesus as his disciple and obey him and make him the Lord of your life, then you'd be better off not even coming to Christ in the first place. 
So Jesus is not, he's not looking at the crowd like a bunch of potential, uh, you know, potential customers. Let me see how I can close this deal. Let me see what can I say to make sure that I kind of hook them and loop them in sooner rather than later. Before they change their mind, I want to make sure that they sign on the, on the dotted line. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. People are coming to him in droves and he's saying, are you sure that you really want to do this? Are you sure that you really want to follow me? It sounds really easy right now to say that you trust in me as your savior and in, in a sense, it is very easy to say and to, to kind of make a decision that I trust in Jesus as my, my Savior. But in reality, it's tremendously difficult. And Jesus says, you should only do it if you're prepared to stick with it and not quit. Verse 31, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he sit down and consider whether he's able to go against this, uh, this, this army with one that's, that's smaller? If he's able, or if he's not able... He'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace. Different scenario, same exact application, right? right? If, you're, if you're a general of an army, if you're a king of an army, you're going to be plotting and scheming these things out and gaming it out. And if I do this, what are they going to do in response? And then what if I do this? And then they do that. And I'm going to like plan it out and map it out and figure it out and have some foresight to know whether or not I'm going to win this battle. What if I advance here? Right? What if we withdraw here? We'll have an advantage over here. We'll have a disadvantage over here. What if we press here? We're going to win. So let's do it. Let's let that situation play out. What if this happens? We'll lose. So let's retreat. Let's, try and, let's change our, our strategy. Jesus says, you understand how to do that with military resources. You can draw up models and anticipate what's going to happen. You can determine whether or not you have the capacity to finish the mission before you decide to go on the mission. So do that same exact thing with your spiritual life. Anticipate what is required to be a disciple of Jesus, and you should only set off on that journey if you are willing to finish it. And what exactly is, uh, what exactly does Jesus require of those people who, who you know, set off on this journey of the Christian life? He says in the next verse, verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. So what is required to finish the journey of Christian discipleship? It's everything. It's every single thing. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to give up everything. Anything short of that, and you cannot be his disciples. Right? Which kind of raises the question, everything, that's, right? What am I, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? Right? Do I have to sell my house? Car, savings, all that, whatever. I mean, not necessarily, maybe, but not necessarily. I mean, when we think about what it means to give up everything, right, Jesus isn't necessarily commanding every Christian wholesale right now to sell everything that they have, give everything away, have no possessions, take a vow of... Po- the, the Bible has enough commands and exhortations about what Christians are to do with their money and with their possessions that it seems to assume that Christians are going to have money and possessions. So it, it can't possibly be that it's wrong to have money, it's wrong to have possessions, give them all away. Rather, Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow him, you have to love him more than you love anything else, including money and possessions, including your house, car, your savings, at X, X, Y, and Z, right? Jesus is not saying you, you have to necessarily liquidate it all and give it away right now, but he is saying that your, all of your stuff, all of your money, and all of your possessions belong to him. They belong to Jesus. 
He owns them, not you. You are a steward of the possessions that God owns. So if Jesus wants you to leverage your possessions to serve others, that's his prerogative. And it's not your place to say no. If Jesus wants you to downsize and live on less for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of people around you, that's his prerogative. It's not your place to say no. Everything you own, everything that you are, all of you belongs to Jesus. And Jesus is well within his rights to ask or even demand that you use them as he sees fit. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a Christian, know that going in. Right, you, you better be comfortable with that arrangement that Jesus is the king, Jesus owns you, Jesus owns everything that you think you own, you belong to him, and everything you're a steward of everything and nothing more. You better be comfortable with that arrangement because I can and will ask you for anything that I want anytime because I'm the king and you're not. If you want to spend eternity in heaven with me, you need to be comfortable with the arrangement that I'm the king and you're not. You live under my authority, right? You trust me, live in relationship with me, you receive forgiveness of sins, but then you are not your own. You belong to Jesus. If you're comfortable with that, then by all means, trust in Jesus and walk with him as his disciple. If you're not, if you insist on being the king of your own life, if you insist on having personal autonomy, no one tells me what to do, right? I'm going to make the rules for myself. I'm not going to listen to anyone, right? Not Jesus or anyone. If I want my own little sphere of sovereignty, and I want to be the one who determines what I do with my life, and I want to say what I do with my family, and I want to say what I do with my possessions, and I want to be the king, and I want to be the master, Jesus says, don't even bother coming to Christ in the first place. You might as well be an atheist. Jesus is saying, just you're, if you're going to be a functional atheist where I'm the king of my own life and I do not submit to God and I do not do what God tells me to do because I do not recognize God's authority, he says you're, you're, you might as well just be an atheist, right? You're, you're not doing yourself or anyone any favors by slapping a label Christian on you if you're going to functionally live like an atheist. Just be honest with yourself, be honest with God, and be honest with the people uh, around you. If you're going to start a journey of discipleship with Jesus, you need to know what it entails, and you need to be willing to see it through to the end, lest you, lest you be like salt that loses its saltiness, right? Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. Now, I'm, not, I'm not much of a cook. Uh, I've, been to, I've been to one of these, like, uh, you know, a cooking clinic where they, sh- they teach you how to cook and they, like, you know, lecture about the science of cooking and how all the flavors, you know, work together. And I learned a lot, but then I forgot it all. This is the curse of, like, living in the modern world with smartphones is that you learn stuff constantly and you also forget stuff constantly. I was, I was just, you know, whenever I'm just joking with Jerry and I'll say, Jerry, I've forgotten more than you've ever known about X, Y, and Z. That's like a, a joke that I say. And I said it for a long time, but then at one point after a couple of years, I was like, actually, I'm really serious. I have forgotten more like, I'm not saying it's a joke that I actually know more than you. I'm saying literally I have forgotten uh, everything that, that I, I ever knew about this topic. So I'm not much of a cook. I've learned some stuff about cooking. I've forgotten some stuff about cooking. My, you know, I can do bacon and eggs and put meat on the grill outside. But out of that, outside of that, I'm not much of a cook. So I, I looked into salt and like using salt as a flavor, using salt as a preservative uh, this week a little bit. Um, Turns out salt doesn't really lose its saltiness. Uh, that, that, you know, at least pure salt, like, cause it's just like a, it's not like a, 
a, you know, a plant. It's like a, a raw, it's like a mineral. Um, and so, so salt is, in and of itself can kind of last, it doesn't have a shelf life per se, but uh, salt, as it was understood in the first century, did, because it wasn't as pure as the salt that we have now. Like salt we have now is just like pure sodium chloride, and it just is that forever. But salt that they had in the first century, they probably got it from the Dead Sea and kind of extracted it in different, different ways. And more often than not, it was, um, you know, it was like, a con- it had all kinds of other material. It wasn't as pure as the salt we have now. And so the, the salt in the, the, what they understood to be salt, which was really a salt with a bunch of other chemicals and mixtures in it, the salt would not with, withstand the humid temperatures, uh, the, the humid environment that it was in, and it would just kind of evaporate out. But the other chemicals that were there were more resistant to these, these humid conditions. And so if they kept salt long enough, all of the pure, real salt in it would evaporate out, and what you have left is a bunch of other chemicals that aren't really salty and aren't really much good for anything at all. So Jesus says, uh, if you have salt and, and it loses its saltiness, the, the, the pure salt within it is gone, all you have are these worthless chemicals, you have nothing. Right? You can't use it to preserve food. You can't use it to enhance the taste of food. You can't use it to, you know, like make your, uh, you know, you can't use it for, for a manure pile to like fertilize. You can't use, all you have to do is just throw it away. It has no value whatsoever. It's just a worthless white powder that you have to throw in the garbage and have no use for it. That's, that's Jesus' illustration for the, a person who claims to be a Christian and lives without submitting to the sovereignty of God, lives without obeying the commands of God, insists on being their own king and their own God. He says, your life is as worthless as salt that is not salty anymore. Jesus would rather you be a Christian who is bought in and who walks with him as a disciple and who is committed to following him and obeying him, or he'd rather you be a non-Christian who's on the record that you don't believe in God and that you want nothing to do with God. But Jesus has no use whatsoever for a person who identifies with him and says they believe in him, but does not follow him as a disciple and who insists on being their own king. He likens that person who lives like that and makes those claims to, to, a, to worthless garbage. He says, whoever has ears to hear, let them, let them hear. So here's the big idea of this, of this text. Count the cost. N- know the cost of, of following Jesus. Know what Jesus uh, demands of you in order to follow him. Know it beforehand and know it before you set out on your journey. Because the reality is there are two uh, spiritual uh, truths that are in play here that both, that, that both kind of uh, are true at the same time, right? Uh, we did the same thing last week. Last week it was the, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God is inclusive and it is exclusive. And those two truths are uh, both true at the same time in tension. Same thing here, right? To, uh, you know, coming to Jesus, following Jesus, uh, uniting with Jesus and identifying with Jesus on the one hand costs nothing at all. And on the other hand, it costs everything. 
And those are both true at the same time. Coming to Jesus costs nothing at all. It is, it is completely and entirely free. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to bring anything. It's a free gift. There's no uh, cover charge at the door. Jesus doesn't insist. that you know, It's not just for rich people. It's not just for uh, people that are highly connected. It's a totally free gift. For, right? Jesus dies on the cross for your sins. He pays the penalty that you owe for your sins. You don't have anything left to pay. Your debt is paid in full and there's nothing left to do. All you have to do is just receive and enjoy a free gift of grace that Jesus secured for you. Coming to Jesus costs nothing. And coming to Jesus costs everything. Right? Because think about it, if you, if you receive this priceless gift that is given freely, nothing is asked of you, nothing is demanded of you, here, just take this gift and I want nothing from you, you are now forever indebted to that gift giver. Right? If someone says, I don't want my car anymore, so give me $20 and I'll take it from you, then that's fine. Here's $20, I'll take your car, but don't ask for anything from me ever again, because you already... Asked, it, asked and received. Like, I already gave you what you want. But if someone gives you something, asks nothing in return, you are, you are indebted to them, right? You, you owe them because they gave you something that was free. Jesus says, if you want my free grace, then you have to realize that now I'm the king, not you. I, I own everything. You do not. You are beholden to me. I am not beholden to you. I can ask anything that I want from you because, because I've given you something freely. Right? The big idea is that Jesus, uh, Jesus, coming to Jesus costs nothing. We receive his grace freely, but coming to Jesus costs everything because now that we are with him, we have to follow him in discipleship. We have to acknowledge his sovereignty and his authority and his kingship rather than our own. And the reason why Jesus can make such, such heavy, such, such significant demands on the lives of his people, the reason why Jesus can tell his disciples that they need to count the cost before they follow him, they need to make sure that they're willing to finish the race that they set out on, is because that is exactly what Jesus did for his people. Jesus counted the cost, right? Jesus knew what would be asked of him. Jesus knew that he would have to, he knew what he would have to give up in order to save his people from their sin. He knew he would have to leave his throne in heaven. He knew he would have to live among them. He knew that he would have to die for their sins in order to save them. He knew that he would have to pay, you know, endure the wrath of God on the cross so that he could save his people from their sin. Jesus knew that it would cost him his, his comfort. It would cost him his preferences. It would cost him his desires. It would cost him his very life. Jesus knew the cost going in, and he paid it willingly and gladly. And in turn, Jesus asks us to know the cost going in. Follow me, love me, prioritize me more than you love your family, your comfort, your preferences, your, your money, your very life. And if you're not willing to finish the race, then don't start it in the first place. Right? If you finish, you will find that knowing Christ is far better than anything that you gave up anyway because Jesus will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and you will enjoy his glorious presence every moment of every day. 
And if you don't finish, then don't bother starting in, in the first place. Count the cost, know it beforehand, know it before you set out. Right? Don't, start, don't start building a tower and then run out of money halfway through. Don't go to war and then find that you're not able to finish the mission. Don't be like salt that loses its saltiness and becomes worthless. Know the cost, fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us in the gospel. We thank you for the great lengths that you went in order to save us from our sin. We thank you that you were willing to come to us, to live among us, and to die for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that in response thereto, that we might follow you in discipleship, even when it costs, even when it uh, hurts, even when it involves suffering. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in view of your sacrifice, and we pray that you would help us to live lives of repentance and faithfulness and, and discipleship. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.